David Beeson welcoming you to chapter 104 of A History of England. This is where we focus on the impact of the Great Reform Act. Incidentally, it was followed by similar legislation in Scotland and Ireland, though I'll be talking mostly about the provisions in England and Wales, which elected the vast majority of British MPs. Adoption of the Act showed two things. Firstly, that ultimately the will of the House of Commons would prevail over a foot-dragging king and an obstructive House of Lords. The elected institution of the British political system was increasingly dominating over the two hereditary ones. Secondly, external pressure had been a key element in the success of reform. Not that government simply allowed itself to be pressured. On the contrary, when pressure turned to violence, the Home Secretary, Viscount Melbourne, could react with severity, though tempered with some sensitivity. After the swing riots of 1830, he set up a special commission to try the thousand arrested, but insisted on justice being observed, so a third of them were acquitted. One in five received death sentences, but he commuted all but 19 to transportation to Australia. The following year, after rioters burnt a hundred buildings and seized control of Bristol for three days, following the House of Lords' rejection of the Second Reform Bill, just 43 were imprisoned, seven were transported, and five condemned to death, one of whom was reprieved. By the standards of a society that still had 200 crimes punishable by death on its books, these were relatively lenient responses. On the other hand, transportation to Australia was no soft option. After a trip that generally lasted four months in a cramped ship where infection added to storm and shipwreck as threats to life, survivors found themselves struggling to build a colony under grim conditions. Transportation wasn't a soft option, just one generally preferred to execution. What about the troubles themselves, though? At the time, many felt that Britain was as close as it had ever been to insurrection. Mass movements had sprung up across the country. At a time when the expressions working class and middle class were entering widespread usage in English, some movements drew members from both. Others, such as the National Union of the Working Class, or NUWC, focused far more exclusively on the concerns of the working class. Moderate organisations simply supported the Reform Bill, sometimes with the hope that it would lead to repeal of the Corn Laws and the introduction of free trade later. More radical movements supported the Bill as only the first step towards further changes towards universal manhood suffrage, yearly parliamentary elections and the secret ballot. Organisations like the NUWC went far further still, opposing the Bill as a SOP, and demanding implementation of the full radical platform immediately. You may remember Henry Hunt, nicknamed the Orator. It was the attempt to arrest him while he was addressing the crowd at St Peter's Field in 1819 that led to the Peterloo Massacre. He spent some time in jail, but later won, with radical support, the parliamentary seat of Preston in Lancashire, against another man we've already met, the future Prime Minister then known as Lord Stanley. Still a fiery speaker and a leading light in the NUWC, Hunt intervened in a meeting of the relatively moderate Manchester Political Union and swung it into backing the full radical programme. 
This shifting of the political centre of gravity towards mass movements outside Parliament may not have been quite revolutionary, but came close to it. The historian Boyd Hilton suggests there is a case for seeing the crisis in genuinely revolutionary terms. For a brief period, control passed out of the hands of the parliamentary classes and into those of the radicals. The Great Reform Act was the response to this pressure. So, what did it concede? We only have estimates, but most commentators agreed that the electorate was about 400,000 strong before the Act, which increased it to 650,000. That's a sizable increase, but it still left 19 out of 20 adults without the votes. Originally 60 tiny boroughs where a patron could nominate an MP more or less at will were slated for abolition. 47 slightly larger boroughs were due to lose one of their two MPs. Parliamentary amendments reduced the numbers to 56 and 30 respectively. Even so, this was a substantial reform. 22 towns that previously had no representation were given two MPs and 21 received one. The huge industrial centres at last gained a voice in Parliament. On the other hand, the limitation of the franchise in boroughs to householders in a property worth at least £10 a year enfranchised much of the middle class but excluded many of the working class who were too poor to qualify. While those who already had the vote kept it, so long as they remained in the same constituency, there'd be no additions to the quaint categories that had enjoyed the right to vote in some boroughs previously, such as pot wallopers, householders with a hearth big enough to boil a cauldron, or as they called it, wallop a pot. What's more, the original bill increased the number of county seats from 82 to 137, and the version finally passed took the number to 144. In terms of numbers of electors per MP, counties were underrepresented compared to boroughs, but they still had the biggest electorates, requiring expensive campaigns, which gave the wealthy a huge advantage. Another amendment extended the county vote to tenants paying £50 a year, sometimes called opulent serfs. With no secret ballot, tenants would be under pressure to vote the way their landlord instructed them. Revolution may have been in the air outside Parliament, but it didn't turn the Act into anything revolutionary. When presenting the second reform bill to the Lords, Earl Grey admitted that it had been designated as destructive of the Constitution, as revolutionary in its spirit and its principle. He, however, believed he was offering them the chance to vote for the peace, prosperity and concord of the country. If they refused to do so, they would be choosing the continuance of a state of political disaffection which threatens all those consequences that must arise when ill-feeling is engendered in the people towards the government of a country. In other words, far from being revolutionary, the bill was the only means to head off revolution. He was right. As we've seen, when the Lords rejected his advice and threw out the bill, they triggered the violence that reached such a peak in Bristol. There had been other criticisms of the bill. One was that it would set the country on a slippery slope towards further reform. Lord John Russell, main sponsor of the measure, later won himself the nickname Finality Jack by his insistence that, on the contrary, 
his bill would wrap things up with no need for further reform in the future. Like the so-called Democrats of ancient Athens, who saw mass democracy as no better than mob rule, the Whigs wanted the vote held only by the best people, the relatively wealthy with a stake in society that they wouldn't want to jeopardise by anything too radical. He favoured redefining the best to include the middle classes, but no more. That would be that. No need ever to consider further reform. It would indeed be a long time before reform re-emerged as a political issue. 34 years, in fact. Ironically, though, it would be finality Jack himself who would initiate the next phase of reform in the closing stages of his long career. Finally, in one respect, the Great Reform Act did great harm. It explicitly defined, for the first time, voters as male. A long and often bitter struggle lay ahead for women's suffrage. Overall, then, in the literal sense of aristocracy as ruled by the best or wealthiest, the act was far more aristocratic than democratic. It included protection for landowners in its treatment of county seats. It also extended the vote to the middle class, but no further. That drove a wedge between the newly enfranchised middle classes and the working classes still denied the vote. All of this means that, funnily enough, an area where it had the most immediate impact was one of its least dramatic provisions, the introduction of a register of voters. That gave the parties an incentive to get as many as possible of their own supporters onto the register. In turn, that led to parties having to work with potential electors, even outside election campaigns, and find out what they were hoping for from their MPs, which required party organisation at constituency level. The Tories led the way. The Carlton Club in London had been set up as an association for the leading members of the party, a role it still plays today. It emerged as an early form of national organisation and worked to encourage the formation of constituency associations. Registration and election campaigns would now be given organised direction. Increased party organisation led to a rapid decline in numbers of independent MPs and the emergence of the party system we see in Britain still today. Whether it was a good or bad thing, I leave it to you to judge. Either way, it was certainly a change. Remember that after the 1830 election, both Wellington and Grey hoped that they might form a government as they vied to win over independence. At the 1832 election, the first after the Act, all 658 seats went to party-affiliated MPs. What's more, 441 of them went to the Whigs. Their tally of MPs rose by 71, the Tories fell by 60. That gave Grey a thumping majority, leading to the government's other great reform. I'm told that there's a Portuguese expression describing a law as for the English to see. Apparently it dates from the time of slavery. Like Spain, Portugal had signed up to abolition of the slave trade under British pressure. Like Spain, it was ignoring that abolition as far as it could, discreetly of course, leaving abolition as a measure for the British to see. 
Several episodes ago, we saw that many leading campaigners against slavery, including William Wilberforce, the champion of the cause, had begun to feel in the 1820s that it wasn't, after all, enough to abolish the trade. There was too much of the empty gesture for the English to see about it. The campaigners decided that it was time to raise their sights and demand the abolition of slavery itself. As with Catholic Emancipation and the Reform Act, a movement began outside Parliament to press for the change. And in the 1832 general election, with all those new middle-class voters, they saw their chance. In the changed atmosphere the Act created, with closer campaigning to voters, it was possible to put pressure on candidates to pledge themselves to specific policies. Many were pressed to pledge themselves to vote for abolition. One of the notable instances was William Cobbett, the radical who, you'll remember, had campaigned fiercely for the rights of British workers, but denounced Wilberforce's campaign over slavery as a distraction. Now, though, even Cobbett had to pledge to support abolition when he ran for election to Parliament in the Lancashire seat of Oldham. He won, as did a great many candidates pledged to abolition. With its massive majority behind it, Gray's government brought forward a bill to abolish slavery. Sadly, as so often in Britain, it was a bit of a fudge. Abolition would be gradual, with slaves reclassified as apprentices for a defined period after which they would be free. And there would be exceptions, notably for territories controlled by the East India Company, for Ceylon, today Sri Lanka, and for the tiny island of St Helena, which had been Napoleon's final place of exile. Worst of all, a colossal level of compensation, amounting to one pound out of every five of British gross domestic product of the time, would be paid to slave owners for the loss of their so-called property, while the former slaves themselves received nothing. The measure passed the Commons on the 22nd of July 1833, just one week before Wilberforce died, so he lived to see abolition on its way to the statute books. For all its flaws, abolition was a massive step. It marked the inevitable end of slavery in those parts of the British Empire where it was most common, the West Indies. It's just a pity that so much compensation was offered to the former slave owners, when some of that money at least could have been offered as a little help, or even compensation, to the former slaves. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 